Welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and this is the final, the third part, of our series on the IED. IED is the acronym for Improvised Explosive Device. In the two previous episodes, I have spoken with Harry Parker, an infantry soldier, and Tom Carroll, a combat surgeon, about their military experiences with particular reference to the IED. Harry Parker was severely injured by an IED in 2009. Tom Carroll served two tours in 2009 and 2012 at Camp Bastion, Afghanistan, where he treated men and women subjected to the devastating injuries caused by the improvised explosive device. Today I'm talking with an ex-soldier who works for the Halo Trust, the NGO specialising in the disarming of mines and IEDs. This episode was recorded before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. IEDs were responsible for two-thirds of the UK Armed Forces casualties in both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Minefield Engineer My guest today is a former British Army officer and international aid worker who has cleared landmines and unexploded bombs in the aftermath of war in Africa, Asia and the Middle East. As co-chair of the Cluster Munitions Coalition, he successfully campaigned for an international ban on cluster bombs. He currently serves on the board of directors of the minefield clearance charity The Halo Trust and the weapons policy organisation Article 36. He travels regularly overseas to conflict-afflicted countries. He is also the author of five novels, including the 2010 Ian Fleming Steel Dagger winner, a loyal spy. Simon Conway, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to see you. So the first thing we're going to talk about is mines and minefields, sort of the history, a potted history of why people have used them in conflicts, probably from the, from the Second World War, both land and sea and types and so on. So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean... I- Essentially, minefields are, they're really an area of denial weapon. They're, they're, to, they're to prevent enemy forces from, from, from you know, approaching and, and, and advancing through positions. They've also been designed specifically to kind of jam up the, the, the casualty evacuation tra- chain of, 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 of militaries, which is why we've seen mines themselves become smaller with a smaller explosive content in them over time because the intention is not to kill but actually to maim you know if you take somebody's foot off you're what you're actually doing is creating circumstances in which somebody else has got to pick them up maybe two or three people and they've got to then bundle them back through quite an extensive casualty evacuation chain in order for them to get treatment so you're not just taking out one person so that's something to remember about about most mines is they're not intended to kill, they're intended to maim. And of course, that's that's one of the things that makes them, most of them are, that, that's one of the things that makes them very, very unpleasant. Um, are, are they more something that's left there than, because, I mean, conventional military tactics would be that you would have a minefield and then you would have covering arcs of far over it, wouldn't you? I mean, that's kind of what we yeah. were taught at Sandhurst. That, that's not the yeah, thing with these, exactly. is it? They're just left there and... 
Well, I mean, that that's what they were intended for. What's happened really is, is, is two things. I mean, one is that the nature of warfare has changed. It's become much more mobile. And actually, if you're going to advance or retreat, if you're going to move your forces, the last thing you need are, are these kind of obstacles that you've created yourself. So, so in, in modern warfare, uh, modern mobile warfare, having static minefields is actually often a hindrance. And then the other thing is that is that is that you know most of these weapons were built for the Cold War. They were built for a war that never happened. They were designed, you know, for, for use. You know, as with many modern systems, you know, on the North North European plane or whatever. And 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 actually, what's happened is that they ended up being given often to groups in in you know they ended up getting used in uh, developing countries. Uh, in the, across the third world, got given to various different factions because, of course, the Cold War wasn't so cold out there in the rest of the world. Um, so there was a very war. bit of complex. Yeah, exactly. They get, they get used in proxy wars by irregular militias who don't get taught how to lay them. So they end up being laid in very, very irregular ways uh, that often make no sense. Very rare. I mean, in my 20 plus years of clearing minefields, very few minefields I've cleared that actually have a map, you know, that, or that there was even a map made. I mean, if there was a map made, the process of trying to find it and get hold of it often, you know, decades after the conflict can be difficult, but it's possible. Was that um, a, a, a very big con- contrast to the Second World War when Germans, say, were la- laying mines? Would they write it all down very carefully? So clearing it up wasn't so difficult at the end of the war. I think so. Um, my impression is that, that certainly when the Germans had time, they they, they made um, uh, good maps that were able to be read, and and that that aided the clearance afterwards and speeded up the clearance afterwards. I think I suspect in the latter stages of the conflict, you know, as they were falling back through Germany, I suspect quite a lot of mines were laid without any maps being made because they were done in haste. But but I think generally as a rule. In the Second World War, you, you saw kind of responsible record keeping. And I saw that after the war, the Navy actually employed German naval ratings to man uh, minesweepers to sweep up their own mines. I don't know. I'd never heard of that before. So I guess yeah. that was <laughs> putting them to yeah. use, which nowadays you wouldn't be able to do, would you? No, you, I mean, you, it would be against the law now, but there were about 90,000 German prisoners of war were used to clear landmines after the Second World War, and they cleared, they cleared millions, tens of millions of mines. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You, 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 can, you can, I mean, irrespective of the fact whether it was legal or not, you can argue that one of the reasons that there wasn't an insurgency in Germany after the war was because so many of the soldiers were, were busy clearing up the mines in that vital kind of six-month period after Berlin fell. Now, hey, you know, the, the organisation I work for, we employ 10,000 people. Now, we don't, we don't employ prisoners of war, but we do employ people who've been reintegrated as combatants in a, in a similar kind of role. And, and of course, it's much, it's much safer and, 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 and done much more effectively than it was back in the Second World War when they did have pretty high casualty rates. And, and they would be doing this both willingly and being paid. Our staff, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yes. And, now, and it's a pretty good, you know, it's a pretty good job. If you're in Afghanistan uh, or in Cambodia or, or, or Angola and, and you come from a remote community, um, 
mine clearance, you know, demining can can offer you a stable income. Um, and we equip all of our deminers uh, with, you know, proper body armor, ballistic visors, metal detectors. We've got very well rehearsed standard operating procedures, and we have very low, very low casualty rates. I think we're on a, I think we're on a bat on a par with Scottish forestry. Right. Okay. So, yes, because the. Um... Certainly the impression, obviously, when you watch a film like The Hurt Locker, is that you're not going to survive very long at all. But I suppose that was, that was a very specific in the middle of a war going on. But- I, think, I think Hollywood's always had a problem with, with mines and, and, and bombs. I mean, like, for instance, the, you know, the great, the Hollywood trope of, of, of treading on a mine and then it goes off when you lift your foot mm. doesn't happen. It never happened. You know, basically... You tread, you tread on it, the pressure plate goes down, that usually frees a space for a spring to hit a detonator, and boom, that's it, you lost your foot. So that th- there's all sorts of kind of tribes in the movies. I mean, I enjoyed Hurt Locker, but I do know a lot of bomb techs who are kind of fizzing with anger at what yeah, they of thought was sort of deeply irresponsible behaviour. It was ever thus, I guess, wasn't it? But back yeah. to back to Halo and also the Ottawa 97. Could you give us a little bit of a... Uh, idea about the treaties to ban mines yeah so as i was saying earlier during the cold war there's absolutely massive use of mines i mean they were produced on huge scale and they're used in vast numbers in places like afghanistan cambodia angola mozambique really i think the the country that really highlighted the problem was was afghanistan i mean there was a, a humanitarian crisis caused by huge numbers of mines laid by the Russians. And they were, you know, there was a general you know, sense of outrage at, 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 the, at, at the levels of casualties of ordinary people. This was ordinary people going about their business, blowing themselves up. And, and, and often actually young people. I mean, if you look around the world, and it's true today as it was then, it's often curious teenagers. They walk into areas they shouldn't, they pick things up they shouldn't, etc. Curious young boys, actually, are the most vulnerable group around the world. Absolutely every country you go to, blowing themselves up. Like um, those stories he, of uh, young boys in the Blitz, I mean, in London, yeah. running around yeah. on bomb sites, yeah. I, I guess, yeah, exactly. getting hurt. So you have this humanitarian emergency, and, and this prompts this prompts a couple of things. One is this, you know, the campaign, the campaign to ban landmines, really to say this is victim-operated landmines, are you know completely un- unacceptable and that was extremely successful we know you know for instance it had people like Jody Williams who led the campaign and then of course Princess Diana Princess Diana came to one of our halo minefields in January 97 and in doing so highlighted the work that we do and the terrible effects of, of landmines and that that led to the mine ban treaty which was signed in 1999 and now and actually it's been incredibly successful treaty more than 200 countries signed and you can't buy landmines on the open market anymore i mean they're really hard to get and that's actually one of the reasons why non-states actors are using ieds because they can't get hold of you know very there's very few countries involved in 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 production probably the only one that we really know of that's exporting is Iran, and they're they're sending mines to Yemen. But I mean, other than that, 
pretty much a pariah weapon now, and, and any state that, that sells them is a, is a pariah state. So if in conventional military, your platoon is setting up an ambush, you know, you remember you go along the track and then you cut back on yourself yeah. and you get your guys. Nowadays, that wouldn't include claymores and mines around to get the guys running away, or, or is that still allowed? In You can use claymores if they're command detonated. Right. So, so a claymore, you know, it's basically a sheet of explosives with a sheet of ball bearings, uh, and it fires out uh, uh, in an arc. Uh, ball bearings. Um, if it was, if it had a tripwire f- attached to it, that would be contrary to the mine ban treaty. But if he, if you've got a clacker and there's there's a person at the end who presses it, then that that is not illegal under the mine ban treaty. Okay. I mean, I think the thing. In parallel to the mine ban treaty, you get the beginnings of, of, of what we call humanitarian landmine clearance. So, um, and one of the founders of this was, was Colin Mitchell, um, who, Mad Mitch of Aden, uh, who was one of the founders of Halo. He had been, um, he was in Kabul working for Radio Free Kabul, and he'd been in the, in the Second World War. He was familiar with mine clearance, landmine clearance from the Second World War, from Italy, um, from the campaign in Italy. In was was he SAS or something? Was he? He was an Argyle. He was Argyle and Southern Highlander. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And a lot. And interestingly, a lot of Halo people were ex Highland regiments. So, for instance, I was in the Queen's Own Highlanders, um, which is of some relevance to the to the um, uh, to the ambush in my book. Yeah. Um, but 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 Colin was in Kabul and just said, "Look, you know, we can clear this. We can do this. You know, you do, you just need to get down on your hands and knees." Landmine clearance is, you know, it's a bit of a, it's like a mixture between gardening and archaeology. You know, as long as you've got the kit, you're on your hands and knees. You can, you can, you can clear the mines. And so, so they, they, they started in Kabul in 1988, and that was the sort of founding story of of, of Halo, and and the and the founding story of of, of humanitarian landmine clearance. And so, and so nobody was doing any kind of clearance uh, before that, except yeah. when governments decided to. To do it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first time, really, that that, that civilians had done it, and it, and it, and there were, I mean, it wasn't just Halo. There were there were others that were kind of reaching that conclusion at the same time, both within the UN and also within Mines Advisory Group and other British organisations. So, but but I think, um, yeah, certainly, I, I would say probably Halo led the charge on that one. And, and of course, it's you know it's evolved massively from Afghanistan. We then started working in Cambodia. That was the next place, which also you know huge numbers of people um, maimed and injured uh, after the um, you know after the Khmer Rouge had been pushed out of Cambodia by the um, by the Vietnamese. The basics are the same, you know, men and women on their hands and knees in body armor with metal detectors, with scrapers and probes and and. You know, garden shears to cut the vegetation, and, and, and um, there have been some advances. I mean, we're increasingly using um, dual-purpose detectors that have uh, metal detector, but also um, ground-penetrating radar, which speeds up our work. But it's it hasn't it. You know, the technology hasn't dramatically changed. It, it continues to be labour-intensive, so we employ a lot of people. But we employ people from affected communities. And what you find is that they often, you know, they, their first salary payment usually gets, you know, they're obviously interested in educating their kids is obviously a big priority. But 
you know, they're spending it on seed to plant in the fields that they've just cleared. Yeah. So we 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 employ people from those communities, and that that fixes the communities. It increases our security. So obviously, we we're then plugged into whatever's going on, and and places like Afghanistan that's very important still. And and it and it, it you know it pumps money into local economy. So it has all of the and, and then what you find is that is that other people come on. So we get into a place no one can go there because. There's mines everywhere. We employ local people, clear the mines, and then other aid agencies will arrive. And then at some point, the government will arrive. You know, and they'll get a they'll get a road, and they'll get a school. And then they might even appear on a census. You know what I mean? So we, yeah. we we find these communities that just don't exist because they're so marginalised, and we transform them, which is really it's really interesting. And you go, uh, you know, I've been back to places twenty years after I was involved in clearing them, and you wouldn't recognise the place. And and also. I don't think anyone remembers it ever was a minefield, which is great. So it really is um, the banning of mines because all we we hear a lot about, you know, IEDs and these troubles in Iraq and other places where there are conflicts. But the banning of conventional mines being sold and distributed to people has sort of has that knocked ninety percent of it, or is it now just these other minefields of IEDs? I mean, has the problem gone somewhere else, or has it reduced worldwide? this problem massively well there's no there's no or there's very 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 little fresh mine laying so what we're doing now is clearing up still clearing what was left over so for instance in zimbabwe we're clearing mines that were laid in 1979 and they are still working and they are still threatening local communities that live right next door to them that have to walk through the minefields to get water you know we're talking about plastic cased mines that would just seem to go on forever and work really well so we've got a job of work to do to get those countries finished. But I think you'll find in the next five to 10 years quite a different situation because we are, we're getting close to finishing a number of countries. Sri Lanka, I think, will be finished in the next few years. You know, Zimbabwe. I mean, there are political and, and economic reasons why sometimes it takes a bit longer than you'd hope. You know, just the money isn't there to do it or various political things get in the way. But... But actually, we, we, within our grasp is getting, you know, it's basically clearing the world of landmines. That's, that, 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 that is possible. I mean, you know, it may be 20 years hence before it's really finished, but, but it's going to decrease because there isn't fresh mine leg. The, the exception, of course, is, is, is IEDs, and, and that's where we're seeing, you know, the growth. Are you able to operate in Afghanistan at the moment? Yes, in fact, we were we were. So I was I was uh, with my colleagues involved in in uh, getting the last of our internationals out uh, back in back whenever it was the day that Kabul fell. We got them out back in August, um, and uh, we were back at work within six days. We got a request from the Taliban to go and clear unexplained ordnance from around Kunduz, the city in the north, and we deployed a team up there, and we have basically i think the full complement is now back at work in afghanistan of our national staff and that's i think about 3000 staff that's um, that's encouraging on two parts i mean one that the taliban have you, you know recognized how important it is for you to, to to carry on doing this work and by the sound of it, want you to do it, but also that they trust you and they don't think you're, you know, um, working for another government. 
I mean, so we've been, you know, we've been in Afghanistan since 1988. The program is run by a very well-respected Afghan uh, who's a medical doctor. Um, we work all across the country um, and we hire people from all different ethnic groups. Um, and it's very much an Afghan organisation. There, there, there were a few internationals in there, but they were basically uh, helping really with sort of donor relations. We have... A pretty we've 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 been able to work within Taliban controlled areas for quite some time, and we worked through the Taliban the last time. I mean, we we were working there, um, you know, when when nine eleven happened. The but probably not with Daesh and Al Qaeda and people like that. No, 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 they are a problem absolutely, um, as they are for the Taliban. But yeah, we no, we're working there. Um, it helps that, that in the late 90s, Mullah Omar issued a fatwa against landmines, and that that actually gave us the framework within which within which to to to, to have discussions with the Taliban about it, and we maintained contact with them over the years. You know, we were able to uh, pass messages if we needed to, um, you know, to ask permission to for for, for um, access to areas, and so so we have a pretty good relationship with them and 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 the thing i think the most heartening thing is that they are keen for us to clear ieds because the what what's causing casualties in in afghanistan at the moment are victim operated improvised explosive devices that have been left behind so farmers treading on them yeah. in the fields farmers you know women collecting water so we've very much switched our emphasis towards clearing IEDs, which is what we wanted to do, but it was problematic before because many of them were essentially in conflict, uh, as in they were still in use. Um, and that's that's the thing that distinguishes us from military IED clearance. We don't, you know, we don't clear under fire. We clear after the conflict or 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 when the conflict has moved away from an area. So we were so if there's an active IED, we're not going to touch it. But if, for instance, Taliban say you know, these areas they're all you know they're no longer in use, please go ahead, get rid of them. Then 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 great. And and, and obviously the local populace is you know, they're over the moon. They're happy to get rid of them. Frankly, yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, come on uh, specifically to the the IED, the improvised explosive device, and. As well as doing the work you do, Simon, you also are a novelist uh, writing fiction. Would you say thrillers? Is that how you would designate them? And I've just read a chapter on your book, The Stranger, which is about a Basra, uh, an ambush in Basra in Iraq. And here is a reading from that chapter from Simon Conway's book, The Stranger. MI6 officer Jude Lyon reviews the Basra ambush file. Ground forces from the Special Reconnaissance Regiment were approaching on the road from the south in a convoy of Humvees and souped-up Land Rovers. As the Pumas put down and the assault teams disembarked, events began to run rapidly out of control. A child carrying what looked like a baby wrapped in a blanket ran out of the farmhouse at the centre of the compound towards the approaching SAS troopers. He detonated the bomb too early to kill any of the soldiers, but one of the pumas was so low, about 50 feet, that the explosion caused the helicopter to lose control. It was blown upwards on a cushion of blast, and then, for a split second, it dropped like a stone. Against the odds, 
the pilot managed to recover control briefly enough to perform a hard landing that resulted in a concussion and several fractures, but no fatalities. The explosion acted as a lure and an accelerant. Caught in the open between the helicopters in the building, the soldiers responded as expected. They charged. Jude is hunched against the monitor, watching a feed from one of the lynxes, listening to the agitated commentary of the pilot and the shouts and barked commands of the soldiers as they break into the building and begin clearing the ground floor rooms. The explosion wipes out the screen. Four SAS soldiers died in the blast. Jude pauses the video feed and enlarges the post-blast analysis report. It was conducted by an ammunition technical officer named Franklin, who recorded the events in clipped sentences packed with acronyms. He concluded that the bomb was at least a thousand kilograms in weight, and based on swabs recovered from the scene, made of a plasticised mixture of ammonium nitrate and aluminium paste. The bomb was located under the main stairwell and connected by means of an insulated copper wire to a radio-controlled firing switch situated in a sandy hollow about 80 metres northeast of the building, just outside the range of the task force's electronic countermeasures, the jammers that provided a bubble of safety, overwhelming any signal being transmitted. An attached sketch map shows a second wire running from the firing point to the grove of King Palms just south of a farmhouse adjacent to where the helicopters landed. Jude switches back to the video feeds. Three explosions in quick succession like popcorn puffing up on the video screen. Improvised directional fragmentation mines packed full of shipyard confetti that on detonation eject overlapping cones of thousands of shards of molten metal. The nearest puma was shredded. The pilot and loadmaster died instantly. The co-pilot was blinded. Another Puma was too damaged to take off again. The next bombs went off as the convoy approached the farm compound through the date plantation. They were initiated by a passive infrared switch that detected the heat of the lead vehicle's engine and fired shaped charges, concave copper discs packed with explosives, buried 150 metres apart under the road. The explosives transformed the discs into fist-sized projectiles of molten copper, travelling at well over a kilometre a second. They punched straight through the tarmac. The first penetrated the underbelly of a Humvee, killing the driver and one of the passengers in the back, and slicing off the legs of the commander in the front passenger seat. The second went off just behind the rear vehicle in the convoy, flipping it over and dumping it in the ditch beside the road. After that, the assault came to a sudden halt. Everybody was frozen in place, denied permission to land and extract casualties. The helicopters soon ran out of flight time and were recalled. The surviving soldiers did their best to keep their wounded comrades alive and hunkered down in the dust to wait. It was dawn before a high-risk search team from Joint Forces EOD group began to breach into the compound. Their work was painstakingly slow. Their first discovery was a bomb made of a stack of six artillery rounds in a culvert just outside the compound gates. The second, a fragmentation mine that had failed to detonate in the palm grove beside the hulks of the three downed Puma helicopters. An X-ray of the charge revealed that it was booby-trapped. The mine was linked by means of fishing wire and a Soviet-era MUV tripwire switch to a second, more deeply buried mine. In each case, the searchers called forward an IED technician to render the devices safe 
and then moved on. They opened up a route to the smoking ruin of the main house and around it until they found the command wire that led from the back of the house to the sandy hollow. Rather than follow it, they bounced along the wire, coming in at it from right angles at irregular intervals. Five pressure plate improvised devices with crushed bead necklaces designed to explode when stepped on were discovered beside the path. As soon as they were rendered safe, the team began to gather forensic evidence from the firing point in the hollow, including the circuit board that acted as the bomb's firing circuit and an Indian copy of a Nokia phone used as the receiver. Next, the point of initiation. A recently dug trench beside a small jetty alongside the Euphrates, another hundred metres beyond the firing point. In the bottom of the trench they found another phone, the transmitter, and several cigarette butts. By this time it was noon, and the air was hot enough to strip paint. The commanding officer of Two Para had arrived by Lynx and established an incident command point two kilometres south of the compound, at a crossroads from where he had coordinated the deployment of a cordon, two platoons of reinforcements in a rough semicircle on the outer edge of the plantation and a third on the far bank of the Euphrates, a wasteland of dried mud banks and deserted marsh Arab villages that had been the bomber's escape route. Once the cordon was secured, he began the extraction of casualties through the safe lanes opened up by the searchers. The final bomb went off beneath the centre of the crossroads just as a puma was lifting off, carrying five of the wounded. It was as large as the bomb in the farmhouse and contained almost no metallic components. Forensics recovered fragments of a plastic casing and a baromic pressure switch from the crater. The explosion killed nine soldiers, two from the parachute regiment, including their commanding officer, two pilots from the Army Air Corps, and five wounded SAS troopers. Jude reads a transcript by a major from Two Para who was on the scene soon after the explosion and described body parts scattered over the road and hanging from the rotor blades of the helicopter. A photo shows the entire area as a mass of twisted, dust-covered metal, shattered glass and debris. All that was recovered of the colonel was a single epaulette that was taken from the scene by the commander of British forces in Iraq and shown to the cabinet a few days later at a security briefing in 10 Downing Street. Is that an amalgam of a number of incidents or, or did something as dramatic as that pretty much ha- happen in, in Iraq? I mean, is that something that would be that? It seemed very sophisticated. I, I mean, I think, I think what distinguishes it is that it's, it, it's very sophisticated. So the... The the weapons that are used were all, you know, I've I've seen all of them in either Syria or Iraq. But but I would say that the sophistication of the ambush itself was 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 actually much more inspired by uh, the troubles by Northern Ireland, actually, by Warren Point specifically. So there was an ambush at, at, at Warren Point in, 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 in August 1979, um, which caused the biggest loss of life to the British Army in, in the troubles. I mean, 18 were killed, I think 20 were injured, including one of the killed was, was the commanding officer of my regiment, the Queen's and Highlanders, the regiment that I would later join. Um, and what was what was distinct about that was that there were two explosions. One, one, the first explosion, and then what what they'd done is that they'd identified where the army was likely to set up the incident control point. And so, thirty minutes after the 
the the first detonation once the army had predictably set up their um, uh, incident control point and were managing the evacuation of casualties. Uh, and, a, and a helicopter was taking off uh, from the incident control point. They set off the second explosion, and that that killed that that killed. I mean, two thirds of those who died was were, were, were in that detonation, and, and so that that was about you know what for me it was about trying to work out you know given all the ingredients that you you know the the, the um, you know the, the different the different types of IEDs that I'd seen in Syria but also in Iraq. Um, was was what what would happen if you if you took someone with with first world military skills and really planned a, a deadly ambush? So that 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 was that was what it, what it was based on. But it, there's certainly, I mean, I I, I um, you know there were communities, there were areas of uh, there were villages in Syria, for instance, where there were IEDs had been laid with interlocking arcs, directional fragmentation, you know. So, 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 yes, certainly the, the, they were no strangers to ambush. So IEDs, the mines are banned, IEDs kind of develop out of that. The, you know, they have to make their own. How do they differ? Are they considered different by the Ottawa Treaty? Uh, are they a different thing or are they the same thing, essentially just a homemade version and that's it? I think f- for most of what we find, um, they're essentially the same thing, just not very well made, actually, um, and potentially a bit more unstable. As I say, I was in Syria in 2015, I was in Fallujah in Iraq in 2017, and I saw IEDs that were exactly the same design, you know, 650 kilometres apart, the length of the Euphrates Valley. And it's pretty clear that, that Daesh were using a kind of standard design, which they... You know, they were either distributing on paper or CD-ROM or whatever, but that, that they were and, and that they were being built to that. And 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 when I say a standard design, we're talking about uh, an electrical circuit with with four elements: a container full of explosives, could well be homemade explosives, often um, ammonium nitrate with aluminium paste, a detonator, something to to blow up the explosives, a nine volt battery. And some shrapnel. And I then guess. a switch. Yeah. Sorry? And some shrapnel, some bits of shrapnel. Well, yes, added extra, frankly. But yeah, but but uh, yeah, so so container, detonator, battery, and then a switch, which would be a pressure plate, usually. That's 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 what we tend to find in huge numbers. And you if the pressure plate gets you know pushed down, you get a metal circuit connecting, uh, and the battery, you know, the electrical. Current sets off the detonator. Boom! The, the container explodes. So, so pressure plate activated IEDs. I mean, it's the same basic principle as a landmine, except that it, it, it's 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 deconstructed. It's got the innards on the outside usually. So rather than everything being sealed in a nice small plastic, um, these days they're plastic, but bakelite or metal, but um, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sealed container, the, the bits tend to be on the outside. That means actually that they're much more likely to fail because of ingress, particularly of moisture. So, so rain's going to really mess with most, most IEDs um, and, and they'll fray and, and, and come apart. So I don't, I think it, it's it's of course it's very it's very difficult to predict the life of a nine volt battery, but 
it is not the case that as per Zimbabwe, we're going to be clearing IEDs, you know, 50 years later or 40 years later. We're not going to be. Most of these IEDs are not going to be working in. So why are the mines in 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 Angola still active? Because they don't have a, a an active circuit. They're a passive circuit, are they? Also? Yeah, they're supposedly pass, passive circuit, and 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 they're um, yeah, they usually just literally re- rely upon downward pressure and a firing the, cap. The, the, well, yeah, right. uh, and you know most of them are sealed. You know they're sealed, the, mm. particularly the plastic ones. They're 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 very well sealed against the elements, which is not the case with most IEDs. So yeah, so we're, we're most of what we're finding are frankly victim-operated IEDs. We're, we're not finding very many command wire detonated IEDs. I mean, obviously we have drills for clearing those, and we have detectors that can find you know single strands of copper wire. But because it's significantly after the conflict, we're tending not to find them. And of course, and, and whoever laid them tends to move them. You know, whereas victim-operated ones. That, they tend to leave behind, which is which is why that's what we're finding. And also, we don't find that much in the way of booby traps. There was a lot of talk about Iraq being entirely full of booby traps and, and, and Syria too. And, and actually, I don't think that's really materialised. I mean, you know, the stories that sort of, you know, there were um, booby-trapped children's toys and Qurans and things, I think were a bit... I mean, I'm not saying that there weren't any, but... But, it, but there was a lot of chat about that. And in fact, what we've really found is just thousands and thousands and thousands of, of IEDs, um, either just, you know, simple high explosive charges or directional fragmentation uh, with, you know, lots of shipyard confetti, lots of lots of shrapnel to maim and injure. The, 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 I mean, and then the other thing is you t- they tend to have larger, larger containers, more explosives. So they do tend to kill rather than all very badly injure rather than the kind of, precision you saw with 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 smaller landmines and what in your experience simon is the a sort of a morale effect on the local civilians and even the local law enforcement and, and 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 government people i mean that that to me throughout this whole thing seems to be the you know soldiers on patrol i interviewed harry parker and um i got the feeling i mean it, it all felt dangerous obviously but the mine thing felt most dangerous to him I, I got that impression, you know, that that background feeling of at any moment. Yeah, and and I think, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there is, and we're talking, you know, the people that I come across are, you know, ordinary civilians, basically. They're just you know, people going about their business, you know, they're trying to cultivate their land or, you know, take their kids to school or um, herding cattle or buffalo or whatever that... And, and so, Leah, there's a there's a level of anxiety that you end up having to live with, which is sometimes can be quite hard to see, actually, because there's so many other things. You know, you go to Afghanistan and, you know, they're just used to so many different ways in which their lives could be ruined. But then, yeah, if you if you speak to families where, where um, you know, someone's trodden on a mine or whatever and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're particularly amputees and, and you see how families have been absolutely devastated and, and if it's the main breadwinner who, 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 who is injured or killed then that then can you know plunge a family into you know in, into pretty desperate straits so so it and and then you know if they're living with an amputee they're going to live with that forever if somebody's been blinded etc i mean the, the impact on families is pretty bad and there is yes i think there is this sense of 
of anxiety. I certainly remember, I mean, personally, I remember a sense of anxiety as a patrol commander and, you know, platoon commander uh, on patrol in, in West Belfast back in the day. Um, just that, you know, that horrible sense that something might happen out of the blue and that, you know, you, you might lose some of your soldiers, you know, that, 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 you know, you'd feel responsible for that. And, you know, so I do, I know. Do you I think we were, do you think we were quite well well, as best as you can be prepared for this, given our experience in Ireland? I'm not sure that we were. I don't think we would have deployed down to Helmand in the way that we did if, if, we'd, if we'd really learned the lessons. But what about today? I, I was looking at your landmine-free policy document for 2025. Is yeah. that a halo document or is that a general yeah. document? It's a, well, it's, a, it's a broader document. So, so we, we're working alongside Mines Advisory Group um, uh, and and there are a number of other organisations that have that have um, endorsed it. Um, and uh, there seem to be um, in amongst it the the trends of well the four trends that are identified in it of there's more sort of going on in towns and cities. There's non-state armed groups, you know, the Daesh and and so on that we've talked about. The complex geographical pockets of conflict, you know, everything's itty bitty. And so you might find yourself stepping into an active environment when you're trying to operate as halo in a, in, in a non-active environment. And lastly, people dealing with legacy issues of minefields going all the way back to the 70s, as you've described. But then you've got ongoing and uh, new minefields and trying not to sort of distinguish between the two, but treat them all as one and the same. And part of my my job within Halo is is getting new projects off the ground, getting new programs started, and and in you know and I've been pretty and and Halo in a sense we came a bit late to the Middle East. Um, we had a big operation in Afghanistan, but but um, we really only started engaging in 2015, uh, and we set up projects fairly rapidly. In, 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 and I was involved in this in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and 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 then again in in Libya. And what I think what was really interesting is the is the urbanization of warfare it's been really interesting to see the extent to which warfare's moved into the cities and uh, i visited a number of you know absolutely trashed cities across the middle east and, and north africa and then also actually in the philippines marawi an absolutely smashed city that day should held and do you got, do you have to um clear those of mines in the same way are they littered with mines in the rubble yeah, in some cases they are. And we'd had some experience with that in, in that we'd cleared Kabul of the, the sort of smashed up bits of Kabul uh, in the in the mid-90s. But that was brick. And we put the whole thing through. I mean, basically West Kabul was put through a rock crusher and it trashed, destroyed the mines and all the bricks. And you go there now and it's going to... It's, it's you wouldn't know um and then we did something similar in sri lanka in in 2002 2003 do the mines blow up when you go through the rock or, yeah or, you, uh, a big a big industrial rock crusher will easily chew up mines and if they detonate it won't really impact the, the grinders um we do have um usually there's a there's a, a conveyor belt with a um, metal detector on it so if you get larger pieces of ordnance we can pull them out and take them out and then let the thing continue to run but I mean, essentially, we're using mechanical equipment these days. So excavators, loaders. So we're armoring them up, um, usually commercial ones um, that we're armoring ourselves and then getting into the rubble and also cranes, so rock crushers. 
I mean, what the problem we've got now is concrete with rebar, you know, these sort of piles of concrete with rebar in, and there could well be IEDs in there, there could be vehicle-borne IEDs, you could get people with suicide vests on, you know, just the corpses, and it's just it's all bundled in there. And you've got to you've got to kind of unpick the whole the whole thing. Um, but yeah, we tend to do that mechanically. And and in fact, in, in Iraq, where we're digging up IEDs, we're mostly using excavators with a long boom and a rake on the end and the rake digs up the IED and then um, an operator moves forward and, and renders it safe. So, so we're reducing the risk to the operator clearing the ID. So, so, so cities is a, is, is, is a big issue for us. And also, yeah, just that distinction between conflict and post-conflict seems to have blurred now where we're, we're often working in places that are, be it Yemen or, or Libya, where you know there's some extent of conflict going on, and we may have to be quite mobile in terms of shifting where we work. So you might but, find yourself in a place, clear it of the mines, and then three years you're back there doing the same job again. Yeah, sometimes. I think it's sort of fairly rare because it tends to be sort of different things happen. But yeah, sometimes. But what you what you do hopefully have after your three years is a capacity to do it properly and, and effectively and quickly. I often think it's better for us to build a clearance capacity during conflict because when conflicts end they tend to end very quickly and you get you tend to see these huge spikes in casualties i mean afghanistan at the moment there's more than a million people on the move trying to get back to their homes now and they're walking in situations where they don't know you know what's they don't know if their ieds in their fields in their houses whatever if you can build the capacity to clear those very swiftly then, then, then you can reduce the casualties. So you need to start that process before the conflict ends. Is, is yeah. it that these With people who are on the move, uh, but they haven't settled into their everyday life, that you can you can co-op them at this stage to help you do this work and to organise their local societies in a way that you can come in and clear this stuff for them and then they can start farming? Is that the idea yeah no definitely i mean you know we, we're talking about internally displaced people people that have had to flee their homes well suddenly you know conflict's over they want to return home it's very understandable so um what we need to do is try and clear ahead of them now in some cases yes you know they can form part of the clearance effort but having having skilled personnel that can get in quick in that moment after conflict when people are are moving when when you see these huge movements of of, of, of people that's absolutely vital because that's that's when you know every conflict you know every situation that i've been in the last 20 years that, that you've seen this big spike in in, in, in immediate post-conflict situation looking to the future both for halo and what you do and also what's going on with ieds without giving away any secrets or ideas what do you think is going to happen for the future? Perhaps starting with, you know, detection and cleaning these. You could you call them contaminated areas, do you? Is that what, what am yes. I? Yeah. Um, how, yeah. What, what's coming down the line for um, being able to protect the people who are doing this work? And, and Yeah, I mean, I, I think there were, <laughs> we've been through a period of several years where, you know, the drone was going to be the answer to everything. Our, our podcast on drones is coming out t- tonight, <laughs> uh, which is uh, well, this is before Christmas for recording. This, so. 
What's interesting is we really are beginning to see results now, actually. So, so we, we, we're using uh, detectors using ground penetrating radar and LIDAR mounted on drones, which we are effectively using to locate mines. The point is that we're, we're able to attach detectors that can work at, at a certain height. You know, you don't have to be right against the ground that is allowing us to, um, based on temperature differences in the soil, identify the locations of mines. Now, that, that is working quite well in Somaliland where it's, you know, and, and in Angola, but we're, you know, we're talking about kind of flat savanna or desert. It's going to be a long time before you can use a drone, drone to find mines in thick vegetation in, you know, Cambodia, for instance. So, so I think I think, you know, there was a lot of hope for drones, and I think it's definitely beginning. We're beginning to see some some options there. And the uh, IEDs uh, themselves, they are what they are. They're not growing in any great sophistication they're just a bloody awful thing and and you know the, it, simplicity is their they're probably their best ticket isn't it yeah i mean from, from you know the ones that we're finding the ones that we're finding have usually got large amounts of metal in them and they've certainly got a battery and batteries are pretty easy to detect so so we're not having difficulties detecting ieds which doesn't mean to say that that you know there may not come a time when there are much more sophisticated ieds out there and I think that I think that things like three D printing pose a, a, a fairly significant risk. Yes, and you know, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of this stuff relies upon the imagination of the people that use them. You know, I mean, what was so you know what was so horrifying about that attack at Warren Point was, was that was that the IRA had you know they thought about it, they thought about where. The British Army would put an incident control point, and 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 so, you know, you never have to kind of you should never rule out the imagination of your enemies. You know that that, that, that they might develop some, and and then and then you're in trouble. For the most part, they don't. But then, yeah, the resources with things like three D printing, it does mean that there'll be greater resources. I mean, for us, I think the big you know the big technological change will be to do with detection. You know, because at the moment. Most of our work is, you know, we spend a lot of time digging up bits of metal or things that are kind of the shape of, you know, even with ground hands and knees. They're not always, yeah, it's hands and knees work. They're not always getting, you know, not always getting it right. You know, you're exploring a lot of 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 duds, and you can't you can't risk, you know, you have to clear pretty much everything because because you know the last thing you want to do is clear ninety percent of the mines. You know, someone's got to build a school on the land that we hand over. Yeah. This isn't like a, you know, military clearance is about punching a hole through a minefield and charging through it and attacking the enemy. For us, it's about getting every single mine. Decontamination. Because, yeah, it's decontamination. Yeah. So it has to be yeah. foolproof. You know, you know, we, we if if one mine gets left behind, it discredits everything we do. So we need reliable means of detection that cuts out all the clutter, that cuts out uh, the, the the bits of metal, the bits of barbed wire, the bullets, the you know the usual rubbish that you find anywhere under the ground. That cuts out the you know the the stones that are the shape of a of a mine. The you know that you can get all of that stuff out the way so that you can actually find find the mines. 
yeah, and then it's just a question of clearing them. And I don't, I, I, I mean, people get very concerned about about the safety of D minus, you know, as they should be. But actually, statistically, you know, we're pretty low, pretty low casualty rates. Actually, very, very low. Actually, very low. So it's not, you know, my concern is always the safety of our staff, but improving their safety by 2% is not going to it's not going to kind of make a material difference yes Whereas I, I, improving I, our detection of items would make a significant difference and speed us up and i was uh reading one piece on i think maybe it's in that same report where there was a time where people were so cautious about where mines were and minefields that it was it was incredibly slow cleaning and clearing and because they basically said this entire country is covered in mines you know we have to proceed at a snail's pace so there is a a very clear risk uh, assessment and and taking of a certain amount of risk to get it done versus yeah. never getting it done um so survey is you know, absolutely a key part of what we do but absolutely one of the things i think halo does best actually is is is, is identifying the locations of suspect areas and properly delineating them creating the boundaries to them because you know we clear it costs a certain amount of money per square meter you know the more that we can hone down the area and identify exactly where the danger area is then the easier our task is the cheaper it will be the quicker we can get it done and we don't end up wasting time clearing areas that don't have any mines in because the last thing any of us want to be doing is 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 literally clearing areas that've got nothing in them. You're ploughing the field for them. Time and money. Yeah. yeah, but but um, in these sort of asymmetric uh, conflicts that we seem to get into, without any idea about how we're going to either resolve them or get out of them nowadays, that does seem to create this situation where you have a lot of IEDs spread randomly throughout a large area, sort of distributed minefield. So identifying, as you've just been describing. It, it must be very hard, much harder than it was before, because because they're just all over the place here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and it, and, and that is that is really difficult. I mean, it's not it's not unprecedented. I mean, the way the way that the um, the Khmer Rouge laid mines in Cambodia was, was we call we call it nuisance mining. I mean, literally, they just lay them randomly, a few here and there, um, because nobody taught them how to do it, and and. and and also just our, you know, badness, um, I think. The, so, yeah, so nuisance nuisance laying is really problematic because it, it blocks much larger areas because you don't, you know, you just don't know where's safe and where where's not. And, yeah, it's the sort of thing we have seen Daesh doing, um, you know, particularly those kind of nihilist groups, the, the ones that, that glorify death, yeah. you know. They don't care. Just, they don't care. They don't care, and 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 that is very problematic because there's no pattern. You know, you're trying to work out what, you know, where the hell to clear. And often, I mean, the sad thing is often you, know, you work out where they are because there's been casualties in that area. And how um, you're dealing with this, and there's this long tail of injury and and death, but particularly the injuries. Um, who's the sort of halo? Do you have uh, sort of cousins in 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 the NGO world that that help deal with that side of things? Well, we have. So, um, I mean, there are organisations like International Committee of the Red Cross, for instance, that's very um, that does a lot of work with 
victim assistance, survivor assistance, particularly the provision of, of prosthetics. Um, there are other organisations like Handicap International, French-based organisation. Uh, we don't, as an organisation, generally do prosthetics. Um, we do that, that side of things, but we work in partnership with organisations that do. We are, we are engaged in, in what we call um, explosive ordnance risk education. So actually, you know, going to schools, going to talk to, you know, scrap workers, pe- people that are vulnerable um, and, and try and, you know, kind of encourage them not to pick things up that, or, or teach them how to, you know, scrap workers, try and teach them so that they know what they're looking at, not to touch. And with, and with kids, it's very much, you know, don't touch, don't go in these yes. areas. And is there um, anything you can do when, when these sort of things kick off proactively? I mean, it seems perhaps absurd, but it, it, that if people are involved in these conflicts, laying, tossing these mines out and these IEDs, from your experience... I think you should never close off negotiation. You know, you should always be... Um, trying to talk you know you might be doing that quietly behind the scenes but but if, if you can do that then you can at least pass on messages and there are certainly there are organizations i mean there are there are there are organizations um that work on dialogue with with you know some of these some of these groups in order to try and encourage them to, to, to use some of the kind of norms of, of to obey some of the laws of war, um, to, to avoid uh, weapons that cause unnecessary suffering to civilians, particularly. So, or even so that, cause them problems down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, I think, I think you do have to do. You know, you have to do that. It's no, there's no point sort of standing on the sidelines and condemning. Um, I mean. I mean, you can do that. You may make yourself feel better, but 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 at the end of the day, uh, we have to find ways of engaging with these groups and saying to them that you can't, you know, don't do that. But it, in some cases, you know, you can't. You know, dice is pretty difficult to have a conversation with. Um, yeah. I should really ask how how do you make your mo- how do you raise your money, Halo? What's your how do you do that? Yeah, so most of our money uh, comes from international government donors. So the United States Department of State, uh, the German Federal Foreign Office, UK Foreign and Commonwealth, FCDO, the new Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, uh, the Irish government, Finnish government, the Japanese, um, uh, the Dutch are big donors. So, so You get anything from the Russians or the Chinese? We don't get any money from the Russians or the Chinese, and, and I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a shame that the Russians haven't uh, made any significant contribution to clearance because I've spent so much of my career clearing up old Soviet ordnance, so that's a bit frustrating. I mean, they do do the odd bit here and there in Syria, um, but it, it seems feels mostly for show, to be honest. Um, uh, and the Chinese, yeah, I didn't. Chinese never really engaged on this one. Um, both countries say that they abide by the mind ban treaty they haven't signed it but they say that they abide by it yes. that's one of the other interesting things about the treaty itself i mean america china and russia haven't signed yeah i think i and saw yet, america because it's to do with korea isn't it that they want to be able to have a minefield in korea 
something like that. Well, they're not even their minefields. Actually, I mean, under jurisdiction for the mines in Korea is with South Korea, but the, the mine ban treaty means that you're not allowed to act in an alliance with a nation that's using landmines. So the US argument is that they can't operate with the South Koreans, you know, as signatories to the mine ban treaty. So, so but, but what they do say is that, that out with the Korean Peninsula, they they don't um, they don't use mines, and I don't think they haven't they haven't produced, manufactured, or laid any mines since the late nineties. I mean, since the mine ban, you know, campaign began, actually. So the and they're the biggest donor to mine currents in the world. So it's going to be an interesting one. Um, yeah, it's interesting about how you know that that you can create a kind of you can stigmatize a weapon to the point where even countries that haven't signed a treaty adhere to it. They're going to get a lot of pressure if they start messing around too much. Exactly, yeah. exactly. There's only been there's only been, the US has only ever met, they report and they reported it. There's only ever been one report of a mine being used, and I think so this is post ninety seven. And I think it was in it was in Afghanistan um, sometime post two thousand one. And it was one mine, and I suspect what it was. Going back to your earlier point, it was probably a claymore that got rigged for a tripwire rather than command and then got left behind. All right. And they reported, they reported it up through the chain of the, of the international treaty that they haven't signed. Yes. It's quite an interesting a confession. footnote that. Yeah. little interesting little footnote. Down um, to but the no, details. They, you know, but that one mine is a whole family and is a whole life, isn't it? Somewhere along the line, if somebody gets hit by it. Well, before we close, Simon, is there anything else you'd like to sort of say about IEDs or, or the work you do or minefields or mines or any of this subject? Just to say how incredibly fulfilling it's been, actually, interestingly. I mean, I've been reflecting a bit back on my career recently and about how, how you know, that I took, spoke about it earlier, but that business about communities being transformed and the ability to go back, you know, years later and go and look at them and see that it, it, it it's all changed. They've got roads and you know, four G. <laughs> Nobody even remembers there was ever a minefield there. And that's great. That's 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 very that's very fulfilling. And, well, and, and I, I think it, it sounds like that sort of should be talked about a bit because we only really hear about the terrible disasters and dramas in the world, you know. And, listening to yeah. a thing about Africa yesterday and people tend to write the entire continent off uh, as, a, as a basket case and it's not at all you know there are places yeah. that are making progress and uh, but we hear yeah. about the disasters so yeah I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't be in this business if I wasn't an optimist I mean you just you just get crushed I am an optimist whatever keep at this and and we are you know i mean the the landmine free thing you know it's entirely feasible yeah i mean yes there's going to be a problem with ids but as i said before they're not going to survive forever we're not going to have a repeat of the problem that we had in the 1980s and 1990s that that will not come around again um so you know we've got an opportunity you know, if, if as long as governments are prepared to fund this, then and, and I would say it's good funding, it's good aid actually, because it, it as I said, it has this kind of it generates all sorts of other impacts, you know, and it employs people, they you know, they plant the fields, they educate the kids. You know, because we employ a lot of people, we have a lot of very broad, broad-ranging impact. Um, and we're also able to work in places 
where other people can't because we're, our security networks are so good because we've got so many local people on the books. They generally warn us what's going on. Fantastic. Um, so I think, yeah, as long as as long as as long as governments continue to understand that this is good aid, then then I think that um, uh, we can we can reach the point where most of the world will be free of landmines. And and you know and IEDs and then we we just need a capacity to deal with new ones as they as they come along. But I think that will be quite specific and targeted. That is a a good note to end on because a lot of it's been quite tough to to listen to these last yeah. uh, three episodes. So uh, thank you, Simon, for talking to us about mines and the IED. Thanks very much. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure. So it goes. This is the concluding episode of our three-part series on the IED. I hope you found it informative. Details of Harry and Simon's books are shown in the show notes. Please pass this podcast on to a friend to help spread the word. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.